Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to our new shiny white Essex Church. For those of you who haven't been before, haven't been for a while, you might not have realised, but we have had a wondrous team of Polish decorators working overnight this week to actually paint this. And we discovered that it hadn't been painted for 20 years, so no wonder it was looking a little shabby. So now, now we have this to, to enjoy. So welcome to this community of Kensington Unitarians that is created by all those who walk through our doors. In, in busy central London, we extend a particular welcome to visitors and uh, we invite you to join us for tea and coffee after the service and to have a chat. And if you want to, towards the end of the service, do feel free to stand and introduce yourself if you would like to. Um, this, I hope you appreciate the little model of Stonehenge. No expenses spared in, in bringing the, the essence of worship to us here. So you can play with that later on. Um, <laughs> yes, it, it's there to, uh, to um, I think, to help us focus in a way. And, and a lot of this service is about the earth, our connection with the earth, the heavens, our connection with the heavens. So some words to start with uh, by Max Cap. Often I have felt that I must praise my world for what my eyes have seen these many years and what my heart has loved. And often I have tried to start my lines. Dear Earth, I say, and then I pause to look once more. Soon I am bemused and full and far away in wonder. So I never get beyond dear earth. So I light our chalice this morning with this symbol of our worldwide liberal faith for dear earth. from Bill Bryson's loving description of a journey around Britain from his book Notes from a Small Island and I don't think Sarah knew this but I'm actually from Salisbury in Wiltshire so I'm from Stonehenge so you're going to get the accent badly now this goes without saying that Stonehenge really was the most incredible accomplishment it took 500 men just to roll each sarsen plus a hundred more to dash around positioning the rollers. Just think about it for a minute. Can you imagine trying to talk to 600 people? Talk, can you imagine trying to talk 600 people into helping you drag a 50-ton stone 18 miles across the countryside and muscle it into an upright position? And then saying, right lads, another 20 like that, plus some littles, maybe a couple of dozen nice blue stones from Wales, a wheat and parry look, innit? I told you I'd do the accent. Whoever was the person behind Stonehenge was one dickens of a motivator, I'll tell you that. Later in his book, he writes, Things have changed at Stonehenge since I was last there in the early 70s. They built a smart new gift shop and coffee bar, though there's no interpretation centre, which is entirely understandable. This is, after all, the most important prehistoric monument in Europe and one of the dozen most visited tourist attractions in England, so clearly there's no point in spending foolish sums making it interesting and instructive. The big change is you can no longer go right up to the stones and scratch, I love Denise! 
this or whatever on them as you formerly were able. Now you're held back by a discreet rope at a considerable distance from the mighty henge. This had actually affected a significant improvement. It means that the brooding stones aren't lost among crowds of day-trippers, but left in an undisturbed and singular glory. Impressive as Stonehenge is, there comes a moment somewhere about 11 minutes after your arrival when you realise you've seen pretty well as much as you care to, and you spend another 40 minutes walking round the perimeter rope, looking, it out of, looking at it out of a combination of politeness, embarrassment at being the first of your bus to leave, and a keen desire to extract £2.80 worth of exposure from the experience. Eventually, I wandered back to the gift shop and looked at the books and souvenirs, had a cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup, then wandered back to the bus stop to wait for the 1310 to Salisbury and divided my time between wondering why they couldn't provide benches and where on earth I might go next. Sarah adds, It now costs £7.80 to visit Stonehenge and the gift shop and coffee bar are showing their age more than the stones. And Anthony adds, if you're really smart, you'll go to Avery because you can still walk amongst them. <laughs> A reading now by Clark Wells. You be glad at that star. Several years ago, and shortly after twilight, our three-and-a-half-year-old tried to gain his parents' attention to a shining star. As parents were busy with time and schedules, the irritabilities of the day and other worthy preoccupations, Oh, yes, 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 we see the star. Now I'm busy, don't bother me. And on hearing this, the young one launched himself through the porch door, fixed us with a fiery gaze and said, You be glad at that star. I will not forget the incident or his perfect words. It was one of those rare moments when you get everything you need for the good of your soul. Reprimand, disclosure and blessing. It was especially good for me, that surprising moment, because I am one who responds automatically and negatively to the usual exhortations to pause and be more appreciative of life. Quote unquote. Fortunately, I was caught, caught grandly off guard. There is a notion with some truth in it, that we cannot command joy, happiness, appreciation, fulfilment. We do not engineer the seasons of the soul or enjoin the quality of mood in another. And yet, I do believe there is right and wisdom in that imperative declaration. You be glad at that star. If we cannot impel ourselves into a stellar gladness, we can at least clean the dust from the lens of our perception. If we cannot dictate our own fulfilment, we can at least steer in the right direction. And if we cannot exact a guarantee for a more appreciative awareness of our world, for persons and stars and breathing and tastes and the incalculable gift of every day, 
Well, we can at least prescribe some of the conditions through which an increased awareness is more likely to open up the skies for us and our children. It is not always the great evils that obstruct, obstruct and waylay our joy. It is our unnecessary and undignified surrender to the petty enemies. And I suggest it is our duty to scheme against them and make them subservient to human decree. Time and schedules, our irritabilities of the day and other worthy preoccupations. Matters more subtle and humane should command our lives. You be glad at that star. Have you visited Stonehenge recently? Has anybody, has anybody yes, yeah, yeah, years ago. It, it's, and was your visit as dismal as Bill Bryson's trip? No. I have an audio Yes. I pass Stonehenge every month when uh, I drive to Somerset to visit my mum. And, and in some way, it's the road that I drive on that causes Stonehenge at least some of its problems. It's the A303, in case you don't know it. It's an unbelievably busy road. And at one time, when resources were greater than they are now, there was a plan to just put it underground and, and just have a tunnel taking the road. But we are not going to be able to afford that uh, in the near future. It, it, it was a very different experience hundreds of years ago uh, visiting Stonehenge. William Stukeley is an 18th century antiquarian um, and somebody who studied Stonehenge in some detail. He wrote, from a distance, its appearance is stately. As you advance nearer, the greatness of its contour fills the eye in an astonishing manner. When you enter the building and cast your eyes around the yawning ruins, you are struck into an ecstatic reverie which none can describe and they can only be sensible of it that feel it. John Constable described Stonehenge as a mighty enigma on the wilderness of Salisbury Plain. And William Blake, if you have not seen this picture, it's worth finding. William Blake pictures it as the work of the giant Albion who stands above it with his stone-working tools and gives a sense of England as a chosen land. Now, the archaeologist Jaquetta Hawke wisely writes that every age has the Stonehenge it deserves or desires. And perhaps that explains to us the dilemmas we face as a society in managing these ancient monuments. For Stonehenge is a scheduled ancient monument, and as such it's owned by the Crown. It's cared for by English heritage, and looking after it is a big problem. We'd all like to visit such places on our own, wouldn't we? Like William Stukeley or, or um, William Blake, or maybe with a few selected companions. Instead, you have to queue even to get into the car park on busy days. I've never driven past the place without there being several coaches parked there. It's been a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 1986. It attracts visitors from all around the world. Around one million people went there last year. 
Bill Bryson wrote, this is, after all, merely the most important prehistoric monument in Europe, one of the dozen most visited tourist attractions in England. So clearly there's no point in spending foolish sums making it interesting and instructive. And really, the cafe and the, uh, the gift centre are appalling. There is a plan, though, to build a new visitor centre and to close just part of another road so that you can make the site a little bit more like the grassland plain that it was originally built on. Meanwhile, however, there have been some really interesting archaeological explorations going on in the surrounding area. There are hundreds of other prehistoric sites within two kilometres of Stonehenge. Some are much less obvious sites, uh, but because of that, they've been less disturbed, and so new discoveries can still be made. I don't know about you, but there's something about that feeling of, we can still find new things here on this earth that is, it pleases me greatly. The Stonehenge Riverside Project discovered that there is another, there was another Blue Stonehenge that had been sighted near the end of what's known as the Avenue of Stones that led to the River Avon, so a whole other Stonehenge. Um, I mean, I, I can't begin to describe to you. Anthony, you mentioned Avery, which I think is just you know, a, a far more atmospheric stone circle. Um, it's twice the diameter of Stonehenge. There's a place called Durrington Walls, just two miles away, and there are remains there of massive timber circular buildings. Then there's Silbury Hill. It's 130 feet high. It's the largest human-made mound in Europe. And, and nobody knows quite why these structures were built, and those are just a few of the ones to mention. Now, as you can imagine, ever since visitors reached Stonehenge in any great numbers, there have been endless theories about its meaning and its origins. Built by giants, built by aliens, built by people from the continent or from Egypt, built by Druids or by Merlin and his friend King Arthur, built by people from Atlantis. The most recent research, however, shows that it, it was built by people from the area, possibly with accents like yours, Anthony. And, and it was developed in at least three distinct phases over thousands of years. And this wasn't just one plan. This was something occurring, another development, something else. There isn't a linear, in a way. Um, plan there that, that created Stonehenge in this way. But it started around 3,500 BC um, with a large ditch and a timber henge uh, at that f first place. And of course, the timber, we, don't, we haven't got that anymore. In the second phase, that's the phase where the great blue stones were brought from the Priscelli Hills in Wales around 3000 BC. And then it's the third phase when this far more complex stonework that we have today was erected. Those great lintels in the outer circle, then there was an inner horseshoe shape, and the blue stones were moved to a, a further inner piece um, that you can still get a sense of now. So it wasn't one project. Its use changed over time. It's likely that it was never finished, in fact. But we do know two of the key ways in which Stonehenge was used. Um, and I've, I've been reading a lot about this, about prehistory this week. Prehistory meaning before recorded 
history before anything was written down. So every conclusion that we draw, in a way, comes from a meeting, an intriguing meeting, of our own humanity with those stones themselves. That is where we're creating the meaning. So what might these monuments say about those many people that worked so hard to build them over thousands of years? What might these monuments say of us and to us? So Stonehenge, it seems, was built for both ritual and cosmic purposes. I mean, much is made today of its astronomical alignments, that a particular stone, the heel stone, is touched by the dawning sun on the summer solstice. There's a similar alignment occurs at the winter solstice too, and there are actually some other very complex um, alignments within this structure. The people who built it were sophisticated in their observations of the heavens above them, and they probably sensed a connection with the cosmos that is hard for most of us, I think, to understand today. Mircea Eliad, who's a renowned professor of the history of religion, writes that in archaic astronomy, man felt himself indissolubly connected with the cosmos and the connected rhythms. And I know that there are those of us, I don't know if, if you've been out looking for the shooting stars that are occurring, the uh, Perseids are with us again as they are every August at the moment. So if you're prepared to uh, stay up to midnight or so and look towards the uh, Perseid, the, now what is it called? That alignment of stars begins with P. Oh. Yes. And um, the, the, um, you'll see them. There, they're about 100 an hour at its, its peak, these shooting stars. We do care, don't we? We notice the moon, but I wonder how you feel when you look up into that night sky. Does it touch you to realise how very tiny our planet is in the vast reaches of space? There is something so very universally human about staring up at the stars in wonder. Perhaps that's why I so like the quotation we might soon have on our quotes board outside on the street, Oscar Wilde's comment that we are all of us in the gutter, but some of us are looking up at the stars. So Stonehenge was built with a sense of awe for the cosmos, and it was also built for ritual function. Specifically, they think, people's relationship with those who had died. It dealt with the essential human conditioning of knowing that we die, and that our lives are finite. For ancient people, a belief in a spirit realm where the ancestors lived on seems to have been very likely. Places like Stonehenge then were built in order to recognize and celebrate the connection with the ancestors in this other realm. Mircea Eliades writes once again that the ideas of perenniality and of continuity between life and death, they're apprehended through the exaltation of the ancestors as identified or associated with stones. The latest archaeology in the area of Stonehenge suggests that the circle was primarily connected with rituals to do with death, that human remains were brought along by boat along the River Avon and process, processed through the stone avenue that lay, leads to Stonehenge. And then, intriguingly, just a few remains were cremated and buried within the henge itself. Nobody knows why, whether this was a special class of person that was allowed to be um, interred in that stone henge, we don't know. The, 
stones with, the, with their solidity and their rootedness in the earth. They have such a sense of permanence, don't they? They're going to outlive us, whether English heritage look after them or not. And the stars appear at night, and the sun rises and sets following a rhythm that was noted by those people of old. Now, my whole reason for having this service today is that there is a Stonehenge bouncy castle this afternoon in Leighton, uh, Leighton Water, what is it, Water Reservoir, something or other, Water Treatment Park. It was in Alexandra Palace yesterday, I think it's going to Crystal Palace uh, tomorrow. I don't think I'm going to be able to get there, which says something about, about busy lives. There is something so delightful to me about a bouncy castle, Stonehenge. It's, it's done by Fe uh, Jeremy Della, my favourite artist of the moment. It's called Sacrilege. And I think far from being sacrilegious, it's actually a wondrously delightful, quirky, 21st century thing to do. Stonehenge is not being used as it, as it was. It's a terribly busy place. And yet, I think it represents something quite deep for us in this country. And we people of the 21st century, how do we express our wonder and awe for the mysteries of life? How do we create an ongoing relationship with those who have gone before us, with those we have loved and lost? Perhaps we're not so different from our ancient ancestors after all. Amen. Words adapted from the book of Carmarthen. We are a flame of fire, burning with passionate love. We are a spark of light, illuminating the deepest truths. We are a rough ocean, heaving with righteous anger. We are a calm lake, comforting the troubled breast. We are a wild storm, raging a human fault. We are a gentle breeze, blowing hope in a saddened heart. We are dry dust, choking worldly pride. We are wet earth, bearing rich fruits of grace. And we are eternal stone, rooted forever in the earth. Amen. Amen.